This episode of Audience contains conversations about violence and death that may be upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. So this is our final episode of Season 2, and we've covered quite a bit of ground over the past few months. We've talked to a singer-songwriter, an art educator, food writer, and even two buddies who just love talking about Seinfeld. But until this episode, we haven't really touched the true crime genre. I'm sure you've all heard the takes about how it can be exploitative and how our collective obsession probably isn't healthy. And that's all very true. But at the same time, I don't think any stories are off-limits, and just because a story might make someone uncomfortable doesn't mean it should not be told. It's just how it's told that matters. Do no harm is the number one, and if someone wants to tell their story, then I, I'm, I'm here to handle it as responsibly as I can. Next, you'll hear how a journalist told a more nuanced, thoughtful, and compassionate story about a gruesome crime. My name is Stuart, and this is Audience, a Castos original series, where we go behind the scenes of all kinds of different podcasts to uncover the creative process behind great audio. One of the best ways to learn how to do something better is to go to people who are really good at that thing. So at Castos, we do just that. Each episode of Audience features some of the most talented and creative podcasters around, and we hope that by listening, it will inspire more creativity in your work as you dive into this journey of audio creation. Along the way, Castos wants to be part of your journey. From our suite of tools, feature-rich hosting platform, and even our production services, we're here to help. Connect directly with us by emailing hello at castos.com or by clicking on the link in the show notes. Yeah, and I didn't think that this story would be true. <laughs> I I sort of bristled at that genre at the time. And I think that that's just because, you know, with my, again, my time at StoryCorps, and I learned this so much from Dave Isay, who founded StoryCorps, is that, you know, you, you get out of the way and you let people tell their own stories. And I think for a lot of true crime, you don't always hear from the people whose stories these are. Jasmine Morse spent five years making a podcast called Hitman, which technically falls somewhere under the true crime genre. However, at first, it didn't really feel that way. To her, it was just another story with a human interest at the center. It could have something to do with her professional background. When she first began working on Hitman, she was already a producer at StoryCorps, and before that, she was a general assignment reporter at WRVO in New York. And it was really cool to have to become an expert on something different every day. And, you know, I had to produce something like 12 newscasts a day in addition to a couple feature stories a month, which I decided to probably do more than that. I really loved feature reporting. So I so stories ranged from everything. I was interviewing politicians to, you know, doing feature stories on a pet food pantry in town. And, <laughs> you know, it was I got to meet so many amazing people. And that's where I really found my love for storytelling. From there, she went on to StoryCorps, where she formed a deep conviction about reporting. You know, it's not narrated. And that is what's different also from so many other podcasts and shows is that StoryCorps really centers the, the people whose story it is. So the idea of keeping people front and center of their own stories was kind of a North Star for Jasmine when she came across the horrendous events of 1993. 
while I was at StoryCorps, I freelanced, you know, here and there. And at the time, I was actually researching a story for This American Life. They, I knew that they were looking for stories of amateurs. They had put out a prompt saying, we're looking for pitches about amateurs. So I took that and ran with it and started doing some research. And that's how I came across this Hitman manual. So as I was researching that, I, I discovered there were a lot of amateurs in this story. <laughs> The amateurs he referenced were Lawrence Horn, a successful Motown executive, and a friend of a friend of his named James Perry. Horn hired Perry to kill his estranged wife, Millie, and their nine-year-old son, Trevor. Perry carried out the murders and also killed Trevor's nurse, a woman named Janice Saunders. Before he did this, Perry ordered a book called Hitman, which you just heard Jasmine reference. It's a step-by-step -step guide instructing readers how to carry out a hit and get away with it. Hitman was published by a company called Paladin Press, who, in the wakes of the crime, found themselves in a legal battle involving the First Amendment. That's where Jasmine picked up the story. It was around then when I discovered the story. I pitched it to This American Life, and they were interested. But at that time, I hadn't found the author of Hitman. And so I just kept digging. And, you know, I had a full-time job. I would do it in sort of increments so every couple months I'd pick it back up and do a little more research and then the more and more I did that I realized the story is really actually quite big and uh I was talking to a friend of mine Mangesh Hatikador who ended up as my co-executive producer uh I was telling him this story at a wedding at a friend's wedding and so years later he was like hey remember that story do you want to make it into a podcast and I was, I said yeah let's talk and so began a years-long process to produce the series that would eventually be called Hitman. Over the course of eight episodes, Jasmine weaves together two parallel stories about the murders that destroyed a family and the legal battle with Paladin Press. I got to speak to Jasmine on three different occasions, and she took me behind the scenes of what it was like to make this series. You mentioned at one point from the time you first heard about it until... You finished it. You said it was like, what, like a five-year process, maybe? Yeah, not consistently, you know, um, like every day working on it. But from the time I discovered the story to when it came out, yeah, probably around five years. When my friend Mangesh came to me and said, let's make this together. Like when I started in earnest, I think it was a year, a, a year and a half to two years, maybe of full-on reporting. But yeah, five years, I guess, if you're going to count, like when I first discovered it to some of the chipping away every couple months. Yeah. And so like part of the reporting, I mean, that's that's conducted interviews, that's background research. And you're even going, I think, to like the courthouse and getting yeah. like case files and stuff. How, yeah, how open were... Because <laughs> I, I know, I mean, I know that's one of the things that like seasoned reporters know to do and know how to do, but was it hard to get access to a lot of the case files? Yes and no. At the time, I went down to D.C. to get the case files for the criminal case for the James Perry and Lawrence Horn cases. It's in the same district as when Judge Kavanaugh was being uh, sworn in. And so it was just a really crazy time for them. And so, you know, it, it was a bit of a struggle. And uh, also this case you know, it has been reported on before, though, you know, they did tell me not too many people had come and looked through all the files, but they had been. And there was a lot. I mean, I'm telling you, boxes and boxes and boxes. When I first called to set up a time to come and look at these files, 
the person on the phone said, okay, you know, I was asking for the number, the case, and I'm giving it to her. And she was just like, oh my God, do you realize how much is here? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I know. And when I got there, there were, I think, two carts full of just boxes and boxes and boxes of files. And so, you know, it's not something that's easy to bring from storage. And I had to set up a time to come and look at it. But yeah, the, the person in charge was not thrilled. And he only gave me, I think, four hours to go through thousands of pages of documents. And he didn't give me a TV or anything like that to review any of the VHS tapes. So we actually had to buy a VCR off of eBay and fly down there with a VCR. And I, because there was no TV, I had to just listen to the tapes. I didn't always know what I was looking at. And so it was, it was, it was, it was a difficult process, but I also had Another good friend and brilliant investigative journalist, uh, Andrew Goldberg, who worked with me a little bit on this, he came down with me and, and he's very seasoned in how to go about getting these things and what to look for. And I remember when we went down there, I was like, Andrew, oh my God, there's just so much here. How do we, how do we do this in four hours? You know, and he said, just look for a story, just look for, just look and see, you know, the story will come to you. Just read and read and read and see what tells a story and follow that, you know, and ultimately it did. Is that when you discovered the existence of Rex Farrell and the book Hitman? No. So I'd read about that previously. You know, all that had been told about that part of the story was that Rex Farrell was a pseudonym and that, you know, it's been said or alluded to that it was a woman who wrote this book. That's all that was out there. No one had ever told that story. And so that took so much more digging. None of that was in these criminal cases. So there were so many cases involved here. There's the the settlement with Children's Hospital when the accident happened, There, which is what Lawrence Horn hired him in to kill his family for. It was that settlement money. Then there was the two criminal cases, the James Perry case and the Lawrence Horn case. And then there was this, you know, civil case. I mean, there's so many, there's so many cases. The Rex Farrell First Amendment suit came years after the murders. So that was a whole other box of files. It's not like this is like curated information when you're going through case files. It's not like there's a table of contents or it's not like searching online where you can do a a, a search. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine. Yeah. And when you go there, you know, that's everything. And you're only allowed as a journalist to use the stuff that was used in the in the trial. So anything that had an exhibit sticker on it, I could use, but everything else was there. So I had to, they were also trusting me to do my job and not take some of the stuff that was not used as evidence. And, you know, one of the things that was also just so frustrating was when I got there, I was looking for, so if you listen to this podcast, you know that this one of the smoking guns of this criminal case in the murder trial was the fact that James Perry called Lawrence Horn and it was recorded on his answering machine, on Lawrence Horn's answering machine. James Perry called and basically said he'd done the job. And there was a recording of that. And that recording was missing in all of these documents. There was a transcript of it in a folder where that recording should have been, and it was nowhere to be found. And they they don't know what happened to it. Maybe a previous documentary crew took it. They don't know, but that was not there. So that was kind of baffling. But you know, it's a 25, it was a 25 year old case. These things happen. The fact that the files still existed is was great it was for me. 
So at what point in this process did you get linked up with iHeart? Sure. So when Mangesh came to me, he was at the time working with How Stuff Works and making podcasts there. And so I initially worked with them to put this out. And then How Stuff Works got How Stuff Works got sold to iHeart. So then my partnership that's when that began. Yeah. It was uh, I wanna say, I don't know, there was like it was like six months into the reporting that that happened. And so yeah, nothing really changed in that in that process, but I did they did eventually bring on an amazing producer who I could not have gotten this out without Michelle Lance and Mark Lotto, who was a story consultant. So Mangesh, Michelle, and Mark really I mean, I could not have done this without them. They were incredible, incredible collaborators. Do they have much editorial control or were they just kind of giving you the resources you need and said, Jasmine, go, go do your thing? It was, it was really 50, 50 collaboratively. I mean, we, we made this together and Mark and Michelle and Megash are, are great. And thankfully, you know, they pushed me where I needed to be pushed and, I learned so much and we all learned so much <laughs> through this process. Yeah, it was it was very much all hands on deck get this thing out. A few we had to push the launch date a few times. We were reporting right up until, you know, sometimes I was we were publishing these episodes at like three in the morning because some reporting, you know, had come through two days before. So even though I worked on this for five years, it was really up it was up until until publishing when I was really working on it. You know, you said there's like multiple storylines. So I want to zoom out a little bit because why you've we've kind of alluded to it. Paladin Press, the the people, the, the company that that published the book Hitman that was written under the pseudonym Rex Farrell. It brings up this kind of subplot, I think, of freedom of speech and For sure. the role the role it played in all of this. And it's really complicated, I think. What what was your feelings about Paladin Press while you were reporting on this? Yeah, so in those few years leading up to, you know, before Mangesh said, let's do this, um, when I was just making calls, I talked to folks at Paladin Press. I, I called when I was doing, you know, just research on this story to see if there was anything there or at the story, you know, if I should pursue it. And as soon as I brought up Hitman, <laughs> they hung up the phone. It, but I did talk to someone. And then in the you know ensuing years, Paladin shut down. Peter Lund died and shut down. So that even was just a journey in the reporting. It was just kind of the evolution of Paladin and, and what it was doing at the time. But yeah, the idea of Paladin and the First Amendment, freedom of speech, it, as you said, it's complicated. And it took me about, what, an hour and a whole episode to unpack that. <laughs> episode six, I think, we really get into it. And I'm a journalist. Freedom of speech is, I mean, that's what my job is based on, you know. So I had a lot of conflicting feelings about it. Of course, it's not my, it's not my place as a journalist to make any kind of determination on whether, you know, this was the right decision or the wrong decision or what, you know, should the case have proceeded. I'm just here to ask the questions. But the question of whether or when information can be dangerous, I struggled with myself in terms of including some of the details of the book. Like, this book is banned. Hitman is banned. You can't buy it anymore. But of course, I have a copy, but I'm telling people about it. 
I'm bringing it back up into the public consciousness. People maybe had never heard of this. And I'm saying, hey, by the way, there's this book out there. And Judge Michael Ludig, who issued the scathing opinion in the Rice case, you know, he's known as a very conservative judge. And he had the same hesitation I did in writing his opinion. Do I include some of the details of the book? All of the ways that James Perry followed the book and committed these murders. In order to tell the story, I have to share some of that. But is that is that perpetuating, you know, this idea that this information shouldn't be out there or what have you? He deemed this case unique in the law. So does this case say something about the First Amendment generally, or is it just a one-off? I mean, ultimately, it's murky for some. It's crystal clear to others. I think it just depends on who you talk to. (laughs) Clearly, as a journalist, I value the First Amendment. And, you know, I think sometimes when discussing certain policies or legislation or, 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 you know, speech in connection with these things, even just, you know, interpretations of our rights, I think people can often, we can often talk about them in these big black and white terms, you know, whether it's First Amendment, Second Amendment, what have you. And I think we can forget about or almost set aside the personal toll because that, that can make it, that can really make it more complicated. But I think that that's important. I think it's important to remember we have the right to say whatever we want, but that doesn't mean there aren't repercussions both to us or for us and others. You know, one creative decision you made that that I both enjoyed and found very useful was giving the book a voice or the author a voice and that you know you hired you hired a voice actor to read parts of the book I mean I think creatively it did a lot but but I think was it also I mean creatively I understand like why you did that I think I think it's pretty obvious was the other was there any like journalistic reason for doing that um, I think it was more, yeah, stylistic. I think th- the fact that Rex Farrell, the author, did not want to talk or, you know, I don't know that, sh- that she didn't want to talk. I did everything humanly possible to contact her. <laughs> and, and and so, you know, is is silence a no? No, but I also am not going to harass anyone. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think all all I had to go on was court documents and uh, a, f- a friend who I had spoken with earlier, or, you know, several years earlier, who, who didn't want to be on the podcast either. So, yeah, so, you know, just so that it was less of my voice and just maybe more engaging to listen to, that was the decision that we we came up with. Were you surprised that it was a woman that wrote it? I I did know that it was a woman early on. So it wasn't, you know, this big surprise to me, but the story behind Hitman was brand new. And the, the when I was uncovering some of this stuff, I was shocked, really. And it was it was it was a crazy process going through that. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting if, if you read the book because which I'm not telling anyone they should. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very misogynistic, extremely misogynistic. And to 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 read that and then you know try to reconcile that with the fact that it's a, a woman who wrote it is 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 interesting. But if you listen to the podcast, you'll learn that there was another person involved <laughs> who um you know maybe even was a co-writer at one point. Yeah, it's a it's a unique story 
That's for sure. Again, with all these different threads to kind of navigate, I mean, how, how much, how did you decide how much time or how much focus to give on one? Because, I mean, you could easily, I think, have just kind of gone down this rabbit hole of making a story about Paladin Press or, or the story of Lawrence Horn and, and, and his family. Was that tricky to do? Totally. I mean, each one of these parts could have been its own season, you know? I mean, there's so much also that I didn't even include because we didn't have time. The story's even bigger than it is in the podcast. But one of the things that I feel really important or really strongly about is just, you know, I don't ever want to pad anything. Like, it, it, I typically let the story be as long as it needs to, you know? But I never want to stretch anything out or include anything just to fill time. Uh, and in this case, that it was the opposite problem because there was so much. Um, but it was important for me to make sure that Tiffany was the through line. You know, I think there's so many parts to this story, but ultimately she lost her brother, her mother, a good family friend, and ultimately her dad she lost so much through this process and she you know that's a whole other discussion about how tiffany came to share her story with me but in building trust with her and and working really hard to do that i wanted to do right by her and just make sure that her voice didn't get lost because i had so many times previously i mean people had written books about this case people there have been shows about this that she was never contacted. She said she was never contacted to weigh in on. And I was, I didn't want to do that to her again. And so for me also the, the human toll and the, we can talk about the first amendment in these ambiguous or, or, or broad terms, but ultimately we're talking about like who was actually affected by this case. And it was, you know, Tiffany and her family and also the Saunders family, but I really felt strongly about giving enough time to, to get to know Millie and Trevor and Janice and just getting to know the actual people and their families and those who were affected by it. And, and again, allowing Tiffany to have the last word and ending the last episode with her. So, yeah, I mean, when thinking about what to give time to, that's something I thought a lot about. Hmm. And that's something you cultivate over a period of time. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. For sure. I mean, hours and hours and hours of conversations, phone conversations, months of discussions, which I'm really excited to talk about with her. It was a process for both of us. Okay, so we talked a lot about Tiffany during our conversation. Tiffany Horn is the daughter of Lawrence and Millie and the older sister of Trevor, so someone who was very much impacted by these events. She's heard all throughout the series, but Jasmine made a point of giving her a special platform on the final episode called Coda, Ashes for Beauty. Like I said earlier, the idea of keeping people front and center of their own stories was Jasmine's North Star as she told this very complicated and sensitive narrative. We saw that play out especially during the final episode, like in this monologue. I first thought this was a podcast about a book, a murder manual for wannabe hitmen. I mean, it is. But the very first phone call I made when I started reporting was to Tiffany Horn, Lawrence and Millie's oldest daughter. Over the last 15 years of making radio, I find most people want to be heard. They want to know their story matters, and they just like to know they'll be remembered. But when I first spoke with Tiffany, 
she was immediately hesitant. Actually, hesitant doesn't do her reaction justice. When I started to explain that I'd want the experience to be meaningful for her, she just thought I was being patronizing. This was a woman who's been through hell, and some days is still there. She had to want to do this, and she had to know I wasn't going to burn her like other journalists had. She told me she was once on a talk show, and they surprised her by inviting a hitman on stage. Can you imagine? So in our last episode, I want to talk about a dynamic that's right at the core of many true crime podcasts. The one between the journalist and a survivor. It's a relationship filled with all these unexamined obligations and limitations and expectations. It's a balancing act. Over the course of the last two years, getting to know Tiffany and learning how to speak to her, how best to listen, this process informed every step along the way. And we've come a very long way from where we started. Over time, Jasmine did earn Tiffany's trust and even gave her the final word on the last episode. One of my favorite scriptures is Isaiah 61, 3, and basically it says God gives us beauty for ashes. And I honestly feel like the ashes of, of my family being ruined that my dad created, my sister and I were able to take those ashes and, and create something beautiful, and we're still creating something beautiful to honor our brother and our mom. In one of our earlier episodes, I told you I'd called Tiffany to let her know we were focusing on her brother, Trevor. And she told me, I put my love for him in this box in my heart, and I don't open it often, because it's too painful. I mean, a hitman broke into their quiet home in the middle of the night and smothered an eight-year-old child. It's really the unthinkable. I could never quite capture the full horror of what happened to him. But this was Tiffany's reality. This was her family. And even though it's so hard for her, she insisted he deserves to be seen. He deserves to be remembered. I do tell people that have losses, and it doesn't really matter how the loss happened. The loss is the loss is you're going to always grieve these people that you love. It's a process. I grieve sometimes really hard some days, even all these years later, 25 years later. I just want people to know that's okay. Like, there's not a time limit. There isn't. I don't think I'll ever stop grieving my mom and my brother. Never. As time has marched on, Jasmine and Tiffany have kept in touch, and Tiffany even joined us on a later call. The two of them chatted at length about how they formed a long and trusting relationship built on mutual respect. Sure. I mean, yeah, it was definitely a journey. And Tiffany, I mean, how did you feel when I first reached out to you? Well, yeah, I was like, oh, not again, you know, because every so often um, I would get calls. You know, there was a show that I had done for the ID channel, uh, Discovery. And yeah, I thought, okay, this person's probably seen this. And I really didn't know much about podcasting, as I told you when we first talked. So the like journalism major in me was like really kind of curious. And so I think we kind of got off to a good start because of that, because you were willing to kind of go in depth into what you do. And I remember you sent me, you sent me some, you know, samples of your work 
and I was really impressed with what you did for NPR, always being a big fan of NPR and just knowing like the integrity, the journalistic integrity that NPR has. Um, I'm like, okay, this might be different than what I'm originally thinking. Yeah. I'm from upstate New York, which is a little like mini Midwest. And I'm like, I tend to approach people with a very like, if this would be, me be meaningful for you, you know, I, I want to give you the opportunity to share your story. Very like, I try to be really thoughtful, but I remember Tiffany, you were like, you're patronizing. <laughs> like, I like, you know, Tiffany didn't know me at all from, you know, I could have just been, you know, just saying words. And so it it was really important to me to kind of walk the walk and just prove to her that I really was, I had her best intentions or her best interest in mind. Um, so yeah, I shared some stories with her that I had done. We talked for hours and hours before we ever talked about even doing an interview. We talked about so much stuff early on. And I think I felt like the patronizing was because I had producers that, you know, were overly familiar with me from the very beginning, even when I was a lot younger. You know, I had done the Maury Povich show in the past. I had producers call me from the Oprah Winfrey show in the past. And they all were so overly familiar and just so, you know, and I just, I was like, let's cut the, <laughs> cut the BS. And I think Jasmine was kind of like taken aback, but then you definitely rerouted really quickly, which I was impressed with. <laughs> I was like, okay, yep, this is like, I, yeah, I just responded to what Tiffany needed in the moment, which was just like, don't BS me, you know, what are you, what are, what are your intentions with the story? Who have you talked to already? You know, and I was just really upfront and through the whole process, it was, I did things I probably wouldn't normally do as a journalist. Like I would give Tiffany a heads up about some of the questions I was going to ask before the interview. I would tell her, you know, I'm going to speak with so-and-so today how do you feel about that? What was your relationship with that person? Is there anything you wonder would, you know, would want to ask them? Even things like I'd run um, narration by Tiffany, stuff that I'd written to make sure that it, you know, I didn't want anything to be a surprise for her knowing her, you know, the trauma she'd been through. Like I, I was not, you know, do no harm. And I'm also not ever wanting to convince anyone to tell their story. And I think that's where I was coming from initially. It was like, if you want to do this, if you would find this meaningful, uh, I'm here to listen. I'm interested in the story and, and you. And I also didn't want to tell the story without her perspective. Yeah. And so, I yeah. remember you talking about the Paladin case and, and me telling you like, this is so much more than Paladin Press. Like this is my family. Um, I didn't want to focus on that because for me, that right. was not... A huge part of what had happened and I remember you also like kind of reframing that and you know I do think it, it helped for us to be like a little bit more collaborative and also me giving you insight and used to jog my memory all the time like you'd come to me and talk to me about things that you know of course I had forgotten and then when you'd bring up certain people um, I'd be like oh yeah you know like it would it was great and I was so impressed by just how much research you did. Like you really went in depth. I mean, some things you ended up telling me about my own father that I really appreciated. So that was, that was, you know, how we kind of built this camaraderie between us and this trust. Yeah. It was like, 
I don't know. It was just so important to me to tell the story with Tiffany. I just, especially knowing that people in the past had told your story without even contacting you. I was not going to be another example of that. And for me, I've always done stories about people and the people actually affected by something. I think I told you, Stuart, before I really have an issue with podcasts that just sort of regurgitate information that's already out there. There's no actual, you know, talking to the people who are affected or the people whose story it actually is, um, both journalistically and also just as a human being. It's whose story is this? It's not mine, you know? Um, so, so yeah, it, and it was, it was challenging. I mean, I, I remember even, you know, months down the road, Tiffany would still sometimes be like, you know, I don't, I don't know that I want to do this. And we would talk it through. We would talk about how she was feeling that day or why, what things might be coming up. And um, I don't know, Tiffany, if you want to talk about that process, I know, you know, it was certainly triggering for you at times. I know to rehash some of this. It it really was because it had been what, 25 years at that point. And one of the things for me that was always kind of hard is that I was technically an adult when this happened to my family but I was a young adult. And so, you know, my mom's sisters, my aunts had always kind of led the charge on speaking for our family. And I do feel like Jasmine gave me a platform for the first time where like my aunts weren't really going to be involved in this. And you, you seemed like you were supporting that instead of, oh no, they have to be involved as well. Like you saw my perspective of like, you know, I'm, you know, a woman with grown children and and I want to tell my story um, about my mother and my brother and, you know, my father. And I appreciated that as well. Um, But it was scary for me because this would be the first time I was truly owning it as my own process and and kind of driving that boat for my family because my aunts had always been the figureheads and they had always spoke to what happened. And I mean, they probably needed to at that point because I was a young adult, but being an adult now with grown children, I felt like, oh no, I can tell, you know, tell this story and I could talk about it, but it's not as easy when you're really going through the process and um, going backwards and, and feeling all of those emotions again, and just going, you know, picking apart you know, everything. Um, and it, to me, it's such a complex story. And then, I mean, you uncovered some complexities that I didn't even know about, you know, that made it even more so. So, you know, it, it just, it, it was overwhelming at times, but I appreciated that you were always available to me. You know, we would stay on the phone. You walked me through the process. You never really had like a deadline. Yeah. And you were really supportive of me kind of just walking through it. Yeah. And I think one of the things I learned from Tiffany too, was I was reaching out to people who she hadn't heard from and they hadn't heard from her in 25 years, you know, whether it be lawyers or like Jenna Saunders family, or these were people who, uh, you know, again, like after that happened, you guys didn't really have contact. And so I was reaching out to them at times and I would always say, you know, Tiffany is I would mention that she's involved because I think that was also really important to communicate. Uh, and, and so, and people would ask, Oh, how is she doing? And it was really important to Tiffany that I don't share that, you know, that's her relationship. That's her 
or what have you, you know, um, and that's her life. Uh, so, you know, Tiffany, just her openness too, and her patience with me and how I learned how, you know, how best to operate and in, in these, under these circumstances. And I also really appreciate it because I take that to my, into my work now as well. So yeah, Tiffany was always really upfront too about like, if this is too much for me, I will tell you. <laughs> Cause I was also used to checking in and just trying to be mindful and not, you know, like do no harm. That's the journalist's number one tenant, you know? And the fact that Tiffany would say, you know, no, I I'm I'm good. I will tell you if I'm not. I really appreciated too. The autonomy that I just felt like I kind of had to form because I, like I said, I was a young adult and decisions were sometimes made for me. And so, you know, at this stage in my life, I was really intentional about, you know, being clear about what I did want to do and didn't want to do. And yeah, sometimes I, I think I maybe did come off as harsh, but it was because I wanted to remind myself that, you know, I'm in control of this. Like I only do what I want to do. And, um, just, yeah, having that autonomy and that this was, you know, my family, my story, like this, it, this was my, you know, family that I was living with. And this is my family. Like once it was taken away from me, me and my sister, you know, we only had each other. We were basically orphans and yeah, we had extended family, but it's not the same thing. But I think that's always been kind of diminished in my own family, kind of just because there were so many extended family members that I just felt like, no, this is my time to really tell, you know, the story from, from my unique perspective. I, I'm not going to speak for my sister, but just the fact that we were the remaining children. And I sometimes don't think that's really looked at, you know, I think people kind of just look at the family as a whole and you see the sisters, the brothers, the fathers, the mothers, of victims, but I, I've always had a fascination with the children that are left behind in these instances. Like, what happened to them? What did they do? Um, how did they go on with their lives? Like, how did they make sense of what happened to them and and really move forward with their own legacy after something so destructive happens to their family? So it was just really hard navigating that. And I think Jasmine, you were very patient with me um, and allowing me to nav, you know navigate and kind of talk through some of those instances where some of the anger might have been misdirected at you, but it was because, you know, I really needed to find out like what my voice was, which you've always encouraged me to use. And you've always said, like, you need to tell your story in your own words. Yeah. And certainly some of those phone calls were really hard and, and I have a, a trauma in my past and I shared some of that with Tiffany too. And so I would be triggered. But the thing is that I would always think about is I am choosing to be telling this story and producing this podcast. Tiffany didn't choose what happened to her. I mean, so I understood where that anger was coming from. I understood and uh, I would take care of myself the way what I needed to do to get through some of these tough things um, and not necessarily put that on Tiffany because again, I was choosing to to do this. And I also knew that we would come through it. And some of our other conversations, you know, I really came to care a lot about Tiffany. And so, you know, while making the podcast, we had to, of course, I had to maintain objectivity as much as I could. And we had a pretty professional relationship. And also through, after the podcast came out, uh, 
it was optioned for a television series. And it was also, again, very important to me to involve Tiffany. And I was very clear that I would not sign anything or move forward with anything unless she was involved and paid for her life rights and all of that, you know? And so uh, just following through on the relationship that we had established was important. And then, you know, after production wrapped and over the last several years now, I think I'd like to think of us as friends, you know, and like we're close friends. I would say I I tell Tiffany. Yeah. I tell her about things in my life, my daughter, you know, lots of things we share. And um, we've had some shared experiences since then as well. And I think that's been the most gratifying thing for me is to see this relationship kind of come full circle in a way. What did that mean to you to be able to have that platform to to tell the story from your perspective? Because a lot of people were willing to tell it, but usually uh, without without including you. So what, what did that mean to you to have that platform to be able to tell the story as you saw it? It was it was really gratifying. And I felt like Jasmine was so supportive and affirming um, and just, you know, really like allowing me to use my voice because I, I think a lot of times people put victims in a box and yeah, when I said patronizing to Jasmine, they almost feel like these are these broken people that are, can never recover. And I feel the opposite. I feel like most survivors and, and victims of, you know, violent crime in their families and, you know, just survivors of these very traumatic incidents are actually extremely strong people And Jasmine recognized that and she allowed me to just be my true self because I am, you know, a very headstrong person, very opinionated. Um, I do approach the world sometimes like, you know, like I have to kind of, you know, knock down obstacles. And, And sometimes I am a little harsh because I just had to see the world as, you know, kind of, you know, just it's just not being 18 and coming against something like that. Um, yeah, I've had to kind of just go through some things, but I've learned to be softer and, you know, being a parent has definitely helped me. Um, and, you know, just seeing that that perspective isn't always helpful. Um, Jasmine helped me see that too, because Jasmine has, she's like her level of humanism. is just extraordinary. So she helped me kind of just loosen up and, you know, also just see the silver lining like there were things that she learned about my father that you know I really appreciated that I never knew and I wouldn't be able to talk to him about at this point because he's gone um and so she gave me kind of pieces of him back that I didn't have so that was helpful because it is so convoluted like you know I've seen people talk about this before and I'll just concur that uh, of course you love your parents there's nothing that's going to ever take your love away from you loving your parents, like they, you know, they created me and I have such fond memories of both my parents, um, no matter what happened. And Jasmine understood that, like Jasmine was able to kind of go through that process with me. And she wasn't like horrified, like, oh my God, like, you know, cause I'd be so excited when she would tell me some things that had to deal, you know, with music about my dad. And she knows how much of a music lover I am. And I really appreciated all of that. Like she, kind of saw me the way that I always wanted to be seen that, you know, I'm not just this broken person, just, you know, kind of protective of her little sister. And we're like hiding in a corner somewhere 
because of this horrific tragedy. Like we're strong women. We're just like our mom. And, um, you know, we've been extraordinary parents just be because our mom gave us that example, especially with, with raising our, our special needs brother. Um, and Jasmine allowed me to tell all those different parts of myself, you know, and I felt like that came through in the podcast. Man, that means a lot to hear it to me. Thank you for saying that. I, cause that was always my intent and goal. You know, I mean, I remember one of our first conversations too, one of our hours long conversations, again, before we even recorded anything, uh, I remember us talking about the complex, you know, the fact that like, you still love your dad and there's parts of him that you love and you're proud of, you know, he, he is, he's a big deal. I mean, his, his, his impact on Motown and some of the songs that we know and love my girl, like he touched, you know, my girl, like some really amazing music. And that is something that I think Tiffany, you said something like, I don't want that taken away too, you know, and that you should be allowed to be proud of that in your association with, with uh, Motown, that's something that you can still have while also feeling the way you do about what he did, you know? Exactly. And so, yeah, telling a nuanced story and this is real life. And I thought that was really um, honest and important message too for people. And you let me do that without judgment because I don't think people sometimes understand, you know, that it is nuanced and it is a little convoluted and complex. Um, and to be honest with you, like my sister's not really there. She didn't have the same relationship. Um, so I'm kind of singular in that. I may be the only one in my family that can really be proud of the things that he did. And and he introduced me to music at such a young age. And, and you know, I can't like be dishonest about that's where my love of music comes from is is from my father. And I am proud of the things that he did in music. You know, I'm never going to not say that, but obviously, yeah, there's other things that, you know, are horrible. And we, we've talked about that, about, you know, personality disorders and just, you know, um, him being like a family annihilator and how kind of uncommon that is sometimes within, as far as what we've seen just in media, you know, with black families. And I just always felt like, oh, wow, like, how could he do that to his own family? You know what I mean? Like you don't really see a, a black man as much as you have in media, as much as white men are portrayed as being like family annihilators. And just, you know, that was complex for me too, because it was like, you know, that's my identity is my core being, you know, being a black woman and, and just the way I've grown up and telling the story. Sometimes it's usually, yes, it's white women coming to me and asking me, you know, for my opinion. And Jasmine was able to kind of navigate that with me as well, because, you know, we talked a little bit about the racial implications and, and just my feelings on that. So I appreciated having that conversation with you too. Yeah. Which is sometimes scary for me because I, I didn't want to like kind of be too vulnerable in that regard with you. Cause I wasn't sure if I could like trust you with that. And you let me talk about that. Yeah, I really appreciated those conversations too, because we really just were open about everything, talked about race. You know, I was, again, I was a white woman coming to her. She didn't know me from, uh, she didn't know me at all. Anyway, I think those that's a really important thing that I could share with creators too, is don't avoid having really important, difficult conversations. And, you know, even if we aren't talking about race, this is about race. This, it's about a lot of things. Um, so so yeah, don't shy away from those tough conversations, I guess. 
Audience is a Castos original series. Our founder and executive producer is Craig Hewitt. Production assistance is provided by Jocelyn DeVore, Esel Brill, and Marnie Hills. Our website and logo design is courtesy of Francois Brill, our head of product here at Castos. All of our music comes from the Storyblocks library. This episode was written, edited, narrated, and produced by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. All previous episodes can be streamed anywhere you listen to podcasts and online at audiencepodcast.fm. Well, that'll do it for season two. Thanks again to everyone who listened, contributed, or helped out. Be sure to stay tuned to this feed because we'll be putting out re-airs over the next few months and providing updates on all things happening with Castos. After that, we'll get right back to it in September.